mustard gas, a mulch of sodden colouring books implanted of the 20th century, the boom town's ragged edge, out past the sink estates, the human landfill, where the wheelchair axis paving quakes, gives way like sphagnum moss beneath our feet. It's 1999, less like a date than like a number we resort to in emergencies. Pre-packaged in its national front bunting, its millennial mummy wrap, the zeitgeist yawns, as echoing and hollow as the Greenwich Dome. It's April 10th. We find ourselves in Red Lion Square, caught in the crosshairs of geography and time like sitting ducks, held always by the surface tension of the instant, by the sensory dazzle. Constant play of light on neural ripples, fluttering attention pinned to where and when and who we are. The honey trap of personal circumstance, of our familiar bodies, restless in these chairs. Our stories, our back continuities that herded us down separate tracks towards this room, this mutual dark. Our various threads converging with the history of this location, braided into a macrame of event, unique and unrepeatable in space-time. From this complex lace of moment, all our strands of individual information stretch away towards their different points of origin through how we got here, winding back to where we're from. In my case, that would be Northampton, an unprepossessing blur on the M1 halfway to Birmingham. At Naseby Fields outside the town, Oliver Cromwell closed the English Civil War in a display of brute Darwinian politic. While near my house, there stands the church where Francis Crick attended Sunday school before he went on to discover the dual helix that had really made all creatures great and small. Crick was a pupil at Northampton Grammar School next door to the asylum where John Clare was kept until his death. This was the place where Arthur Macken once performed before the inmates in a group of travelling players. He remarked that those who drawled and cackled most amongst the audience turned out to be the warders and a local reverend, which possibly suggests the flavour of the place. The Conway Hall event seemed promising, a day's symposium on real magic. That's assuming everybody could agree on what was magic, let alone on what was real. Things could turn baleful over lunchtime drinks and a cheese ploughman's. Ontologic punch-ups, people's holy guardian angels offering each other out, spill someone's point and they'll draw threatening sigils in the froth. Thelemic away supporters chant, there's only one pair durabo, tapped vase out for the lads. The safest angle of approach would be to start by pinning down reality and let the magic take care of itself, but where shall we begin? With Cromwell polishing his wart before the ride to Naseby, with Francis Crick, half listening to the story of the garden and the serpent, fidgeting on his hard bench at Sunday school. Perhaps with Macon improvising madly in the madhouse grounds. Best start with the basics. Best to make sure we're all on the same page. 
The universe began, according to 17th century Archbishop Usher, at nine in the morning on October 23rd, 4,004 years BC, though later evidence suggests things actually commenced 15 to 20 billion years before. This may have been with a spontaneous explosion from a point within a quantum vacuum, though more recent work describes our whole continuum as a 3D facet on a 4D crystal that's expanding rapidly within a 5D liquid. Deeper quantum theory, meanwhile, has implied that our material universe is but the secondary product of a primal information. In the beginning was the word. Our sun flamed into being some 10 billion years ago, our planet some 5.5 billion years thereafter. It took some 600 million years for scabs to form atop the blazing magma. Within only 50 million years of this, life makes its debut. Eden was white-hot and radioactive. Eve and Adam were both anaerobic, breathed formaldehyde and cyanide. Time passed, 3,000 million years or so. Landscape and culture gradually emerge, burned in like details on an exposed Polaroid. This current spot becomes Red Lion Fields, 17-acre paddocks ranged about the Red Lion Inn. The tavern's name, London's most common, has a touch of alchemy surrounding it, retains a whiff of the alembic. Red Lion Square itself is not set out till 1684. Nicholas Barbon is the man behind the scheme, strongly opposed by lawyers in the Grey's Inn Road, prototype eco-warriors who fear the square will spoil their view. Pitch street fights soon ensue between the barristers and builders, one side hurling writs, the other bricks. The builders win. By 1698, the square's complete and will attract its own peculiar fauna. Jonas Hanway, the first Englishman to carry an umbrella, muscular Christian F.D. Morris and his unintelligible sermons, silent movie queen Faye Compton, flickering visions, faltering visionaries. Back in 1661, some 20 years before the square's conceived, it is decided that Oliver Cromwell should be tried, condemned and executed for his crimes against the monarchy. The fact that Cromwell has been in the ground since 1658 proves to be no impediment. Dug up from his Westminster Abbey tomb, along with the remains of Ireton and Bradshaw, his confederates, the Lord Protector is dragged to Redline Fields and laid out overnight there at the inn before the morning's trip to Tyburn for beheading and dismemberment. Stretched on the beer-stained boards through the long, creaking watches of the dark, the relic, three years dead, retains a stoic, Puritan indifference. Lank hair fused now with the fraying scalp, cobwebs of brain, disintegrating memories of smoke and insurrection crusted on the inner skull, which urban legend situates beneath an obelisk in the square, a brittle egg of spite and discontent. Come the mid-1800s and you can't move for pre-Raphaelites. Edward Byrne Jones and William Morris lodge at 17 Red Lion Square. Morris knocks up some shelves to fill the new address, has a sawdust epiphany and ends up opening a furniture shop down the street at number 8. John Ruskin often drops by for a chat on socialism or armchairs. Five years before Byrne Jones and Morris moved to number 17, in 1851, the address is residence of Dante Gabriel Rossetti. In his tenancy agreement, it is stipulated that the models be kept under gentlemanly restraint, as some artists are known to sacrifice the dignity of art to the baseness of passion. Reek of sex and turpentine, 
laudanum afternoons, and somewhere in the future, his beloved Lizzie Siddle hauled like Cromwell from her grave in order to retrieve the poems that he's buried with her. These are not our promised resurrections. Mortal doubt sets in. Nearby at Gray's Inn, four Verulam buildings in July of 1899, Amelia, the first wife of Arthur Macken and his partner of 12 years, succumbs to cancer. Stuttering gaslight in the ochre smudge of their front bedroom, Amy's sudden burst of twilight language slurred by morphia, her husband's tearful, helpless promises. The works that he'll be known for are already at his heels. The Great God Pan, published 1894. His most ingenious Chinese box, The Three Impostors, published 1895. Only two years ago, in 1897, he's wrapped up his latest novel, reached the summit of his Hill of Dreams. Now, the descent, the downslopes of bereavement. Melancholy in a treacherous scree, one false step starts a landslide, thundering and incoherent in the breast. The black seal is depression. We reel punch drunk in the human ring. Love and death working as a tag team will undo us all. We are insensate molecules assembled from the accidental code engraved upon our genes. Mud that sat up. Chemicals mingle in our sediment and in their interactions and combustions we suppose we feel, suppose we love. We reproduce mathematically predictable as spores within a petri dish. We function briefly, then subside once more to the unknowing silt. We are a blind contingency, an unimportant restlessness of dirt. And yet Rossetti paints his dead Elizabeth, head tilted back on her impossibly slim throat, eyes closed against the golden light surrounding her. Clay looks on clay and understands that it is beautiful. Through us, the cosmos gazes on itself, adores itself, breaks its own heart. Through us, matter stares slack-jawed at its own star-dusted countenance and knows incredulously that it knows and knows that it is universe.
so we come back to Earth after our long journey through space. And as we look out from our solar system, we can only wonder what mysteries lie beyond the outer planets. Well, what do you make of that? Yes, who he's been talking to? Yes, he does seem convinced there's somebody there. But who or what on earth is Chucky? Thank you. 
Don't you want to listen? I heard it the last time. 